Acts chapter 7, verse 1 through 8-3. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer from the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned turned away and gave them over over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when he dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by, hand, made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received, who you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, David, for sharing, and thanks, Steph, for reading half the Bible to us this morning. So that was awesome. No, I um, actually wanted, we've done a few of these already in this series. We'll do more. We'll have some readings. We don't usually do that. Uh, I wanted Steph to read that today because, one, it's awesome. Uh, two, it's, uh, it's, it's long and it needs to be heard in one reading. And three, I can't preach every word of it today. And so, and that's actually the point anyway, uh, or not the point I should say. The point is, is not uh, to kind of unpack every detail and kind of take a, a Bible survey class essentially when you read Stephen's speech. So it kind of feels like that and that's okay. Uh, the point is not a history lesson, but I think selective biblical history to serve the purpose of theology. So at least have that in mind. If you're brand new to this, uh, this passage, just have that in mind. And this is kind of true for verses like this or passages like this elsewhere in the Bible too. But the point is selective biblical history to serve the purpose of theology. And so the plan today is uh, to preach a more topical bird's eye view sermon that summarizes the passage for us and kind of helps us get at Luke, who's the author of this book. If you're brand new to Acts or the Bible, Luke is the author. Gets at Luke, Luke's theological point, which is ultimately Christ. It's ultimately Jesus's grace and a more truth about God's kingdom as it's breaking into uh, the world through the gospel, really, through Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and now the ministry of the first church in Jerusalem. So Acts, uh, if you're brand new to this book again, uh, if you're just joining us today, welcome to our church. My name's Chris, by the way, I'm one of the pastors here, so if you're just joining us today, welcome to our church. Acts, uh, just kind of by way of recap, this is going to be really quick. We're in chapter 7 now, so we're um, kind of past the point of being able to summarize all of this, but Acts is a great book. It's a book essentially about Jesus, as is every book of the Bible. Acts is a book about Jesus. He's the main character. He's the hero of the book. And in sort of a sub-level or a sub-kind of topical level, Acts is about the uh, birth of the church, Christ's church, how it came into being, how Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit converted people and birthed uh, the church, which are just gatherings of Christians, into, into existence 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. So and it's about the church's initial spread throughout Jerusalem, the Judean province, which we're going to see here uh, very soon, and then to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, and actually to Rome, which is at the end of the book, so we'll get there months from now, but to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire. And so last week, we looked at part one of another one of these standoffs between the first Jewish Christians, as Stephen is one of them, 
and these Jewish spiritual leaders who are rejecting Christ and rejecting Christianity, some of whom actually crucified Jesus, and who don't understand, and who are threatened by this gospel, threatened by this message, threatened by the church, and who want to snuff this thing out before it spreads. And so we've seen a number of clashes already. And last week we met Stephen. Actually, two weeks ago we met Stephen. Last week we really met him. Today's kind of a part two or three, depends on how you look at it, but kind of a part two to last week. Who you just heard, Stephen, who you just heard from today, and who is the one Christian now on trial. So uh, this is the latest clash, and Stephen now is the one who is defending the faith, essentially, or defending himself against these accusations that are brought against him. And today we'll look at his defense. All right, so it's a really quick uh, review and recap. If you uh, are brand new to Acts, lots more to say, but it's kind of where, where we're at. So today is kind of part two. Stephen's speech, Acts 7, 1 to 8, 3 is the passage. We'll look at the mountaintops today. Uh, as I said before, no time for every word, although that would be fun. Uh, so Acts 7, 1 to start here, and this will help us recap this as well, says the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? All right, and so from last week, we have to ask this question, especially if you, if you missed it, uh, what are these things? So what things are being brought to Stephen on an accusational level, but what things are on the minds of these Jewish leaders who are accusing him of, uh, of such matters? So they are essentially, and I wrote this up here for clarity, but they're essentially accusations surrounding things like blasphemy, so impious mocking of God, and they also said Moses too, we'll talk about that, speaking against the laws and commandments of the Old Testament, the customs, the related customs of Moses, uh, of which was in part the temple, so instructions surrounding the temple, and these are all things that God gave in the Old Testament to kind of mediate people to himself, and so they were on one level good things, but they were also passing things. And so, the, but these are the things, these are the things that are brought to, that, that they're accusing Stephen of, and they're, they're also bringing them, the other, these uh, people who are kind of attacking Stephen, who, and who are against him, and who are odds with him, and who are arguing with him. They're bringing these things to this Jewish council, and then he's brought to them, uh, and uh, basically all of this kind of ensues. And so, but all of these things here are basically key components of Old Testament life and spirituality. So they're things that identified the Jew in a way and covenanted them with God, and one key thing here is that their obedience to it, from Leviticus 18.5 especially, which says, do these things and then you will live, and then you will have life in the land, then you'll be close to me. Do these things, then you will live. Their obedience to the law was what kept them in God's land. And as the story goes, their disobedience, which was pretty quick, their disobedience to it didn't only bring judgment and separation and consequence for the sin, but eventually expulsed them from the land that God had graciously given them. So... So as we said last week, although some of what they're accusing Stephen of is uh, exaggerated, much of it is actually true, which is why Stephen, as you saw here, Stephen doesn't defend himself or correct their accusations. He does bring a defense, but he doesn't defend himself or bring uh, his side of things to them kind of saying, well, you kind of misunderstand. I'm actually not against those things. Let me give you 10 reasons why. He doesn't say that at all. But he goes right into this kind of biblical survey of, of all these uh, characters and events, things that speak right to the situation, which we'll come to here in, in a little bit. So he was then, as he was preaching Jesus Christ, as he was preaching him crucified and raised, he was actually downplaying the temple in part. He was shunning it. He was downplaying the law. He was saying that we've left behind the law as the thing that mediated God and people. And as he talked about Jesus and the church now as this new temple of God, and in all these things, he's promoting a New Testament, one that focused on Jesus' spilt blood for us alone. And this is why it's new but also offensive to people who are clinging to the law for dear life. It was a New Testament that focused on Jesus' spilt blood for us alone. And in that aloneness, it left behind the former things. Those former things for a time pointed to the latter things, but now that the latter thing is here, the former things have been abrogated and they have grown. To quote Hebrews 8.13, obsolete. And so today then he's going to focus on that again in his, in his defense and in this, his sermon basically is what it is or his speech and in his death. And so what I want to do today, this will give you a bird's eye view of where we're headed. The big question is how does Stephen basically do this through his speech and death? So how is Stephen pointing us to Jesus's death and the related new covenant of grace through his speech which is most of today's passage through his speech but also through his death. So he's doing it on two levels. How is he pointing us to Jesus' death and the related new covenant or new testament of grace through what he says, 
then we'll talk about why he chose to highlight what he did in the Old Testament, but then how does he do it through his actual death as well? So he says things, and he embodies things physically. He says and shows. He proclaims and demonstrates. And in that way, really in a well-rounded manner, he preaches Christ all the way to his, to his dying breath. All right, so we'll start with the speech itself, and, and we'll look at it from two primary angles. That I think these are the main two things going on, but not the only things. This was like torture for me this week to preach this passage because I'm like, I want to preach so much of this, and I had to leave like 80% on the cutting room floor. But um, there's so much stuff here that we could look into. But two big things, two points he's trying to make to drive home his, uh, his argument and his defense. And, and I said before, this is selective biblical history to serve the purpose of theology. So he's picking out things, patterns, themes, things that relate to the circumstances that he finds himself in here so he can preach the gospel in, in like manner. All right, so the two things are, just to let you know where I'm going, if you want to follow along in your sermon inserts, it's right there in the worship folder you got when you walked in. But the two things are a biblical theology of Jews rejecting their own leaders. So this theme in the Bible of the Jews, the people of God, rejecting their own leaders. And the second thing is a biblical theology of, or kind of a survey of the theme of this, of contrasting works and grace. And then kind of underneath that, kind of a B to that, is this theme of embracing works or embracing the works of our hands. Maybe you saw that phrase in Stephen's speech. Embracing the works of our hands over the free offer of the gift of grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ, both of which are whispered and shouted in different ways in Old Testament times. All right, so let's start with just a quick survey of a biblical theology of Jews rejecting their own leaders. So again, this will, this will be kind of fast, but the, the two people he primarily looked at were Joseph and Moses. So first he mentions in verse 9, Joseph, this goes way back to the book of Genesis, he mentions in verse 9, that the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, were jealous of him and the preference God seemed to be showing him through his dreams, and they essentially killed him for it. So if you don't know the story, he was given dreams that kind of gave him preference. He's a younger brother, actually. He's, I think, 11 of 12 in terms of age, so he was one of the younger of the 12. But God was giving him these dreams that showed that he would kind of rise up above his brothers, and his other brothers would bow down to him. And he's like... In his classic younger brother way, he shares that with his older brothers, thinking, isn't this amazing? And of course, that goes over really well uh, with his siblings, and they're super jealous. They're, they're angry at him. It kind of like escalates, and won't go into that. But then they essentially, they kill him for it. They throw him in a well, and they leave him for dead. But as the story goes on, he was later found out by these passing individuals from a different nation. They pull him out, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. All right, so we'll come back to that, but one of the key things here is that Joseph's brothers rejected him. Joseph's brothers killed him, essentially. But then he's later brought out, all right? The second one is Moses. He spends more time with Moses. They'll both get a lot of ink or a lot of uh, speech time in Stephen's speech. But Moses is brought up next as one of the key figures. He mentions him in verses 23 to 29. Here's a few highlights here. And mentions that Moses supposed his brothers would understand he was giving them salvation by his hand but they didn't understand. See kind of a common thread here in one sense? He supposed his brothers would understand that he was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And then they said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? So do you see the contempt here that Joseph's brothers had for Joseph? The contempt here is also in play with Moses' brothers, or kind of the greater nation here as well, they despise him for his leadership. They despise him for his leadership role. They despise him for the grace and the salvation that he's freely offering them. Then in verse 39, Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. All right, so I'm summarizing here. There's a couple other things he says on topic there, but basically it's what Stephen's saying is, here's yet another example later after Joseph lived of our fathers, our brothers, our ancestors refusing to obey their leaders and uh, submit to and be thankful for this free act of salvation and, and grace given them. All right, and then there's this all-encompassing survey, uh, sorry, summary at the end, which in verse 51 says, you stiff-necked people. So Stephen is not trying to make friends with this speech, but you stiff-necked, rigid, inflexible, proud, proud people uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a key phrase we'll come back to you later. You always resist God. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit in the world is grace. All right, have that in mind here for later on. But you always resist the Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. All right, so here's what he's doing with his first theme in his speech. Basically what he's saying is like Joseph was rejected by his brothers, like Moses was rejected by his brothers, and he loops in basically all the prophets here, plural, so he's looping in others as well, not by name, but just many other prophets like Joseph and Moses who came after them lived, and they were treated in a similar fashion. So, and the other prophets too. So was Jesus rejected by, by Israel. So was Jesus rejected by his Jewish brethren. That's the whole point. And we see it kind of tied into a neat little bow here in the end with his summary before he's killed for it. But these two men especially, Joseph and Moses, are two of the premier examples of Christ-imaging, suffering prophets in the Old Testament who typified Jesus prophetically with their actions of rejection. And, and here's one of the keys here. In the wake of that rejection, the rejectors were saved. All right, so if you don't know these stories, if you do, just remember this pronounced theme we see because it's true in both these stories and many others as well. But he's kind of getting at that here when, when he speaks, that in the wake of the rejection, in the wake of Joseph being rejected by his brothers, in the wake of Moses being rejected by his brothers, salvation came. And so in Joseph's case, he actually says here, God rescued Joseph. We saw that before. God rescued Joseph, and then as the story goes on, gave him favor in Egypt, and, and he was used, God used him to save Joseph's family later on by calling them to take refuge in Egypt during this region-wide famine. And so basically, Joseph's rejection, if that didn't happen, they would have actually died from famine probably, which is kind of crazy to think about. Not justifying their sin in killing their little brother, but through the rejection, God, God used it to bring about a great redemption for people that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Then with, in Moses' case, it's kind of the same thing. He, he actually says, uh, this is a quote from the speech, but Stephen says, Moses, after 40 years, this is after he was rejected, after 40 years was called by God to go and deliver Israel in Egypt. We call that the Exodus, if we're familiar with that, but he was called by God to go and deliver Israel from their op oppression, the oppression they were feeling from being enslaved. But again, after the rejection, that's, that's key here because it's the same with Jesus. Our rejection of him gives way to him saving us. And so you see in Stephen's speech here, there's a rebuke, but also a hope that this was a part of God's plan in using evil to bring about good. You guys remember in Joseph's story at the end of Genesis what Joseph says about God using evil for good? So that's not actually mentioned here in Stephen's speech, but the character is. At the end of Joseph's life, or at the end of Genesis at least, Joseph looks at his brothers and says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So you intended to kill me, you intended evil, but God intended that evil to happen so that a greater good would come from it. And it's the exact same thing with the gospel. God intended the evil, the abomination of his son dying on a cross in that manner among criminals to bring about our good. If that rejection didn't happen, you and I have no hope. Just like Joseph's brothers. If Joseph isn't thrown into that well and rejected, the traders wouldn't have come by and pulled him out, sold him into slavery, into Egypt, where he would have like risen in prominence and become second in all the land, so he could save people back in his homeland and call them to himself to find refuge from the famine. See how all this ties together? All this is key. All this is key. It's, this, this is because it all ties together. This is classic gospel preaching here on, by, the, by Stephen, or on the part of Stephen. He's exposing our sin of rejecting God, but then saying this was a part of the plan. Jesus was rejected unto death for us. His rejection meant life for us, like it did for Joseph's rejectors and Moses' rejectors. The whole Bible teaches this. There is no salvation without the death of a savior figure or without the rejection of a savior figure. 
And so if you're brand new to Christianity and you know a little bit about it, though, and you, and you wonder, where does this theme come from of, of Jesus dying for sinners? It's not just in the New Testament. It's there more clearly and explicitly, but the whole Bible teaches this theme on repeat, over and over and over again, to snowball until we get to Christ, where he would be the fulfillment of these stories. It's like God is wanting to be crystal clear that there is no salvation apart from the rejection of a leader. There is no salvation apart from the rejection of a savior figure. And so even more enlightening here, I think, uh, I want to highlight one more thing. I shouldn't say even more enlightening. This is just one more thing to see here that will tie these two sections together, and I'll get there in a minute. But, but even more than that, by high, when Stephen highlights this particular theme in the Old Testament, He's pressing into what I'm going to call a gospel-centered theme that has nothing to do with the law of God, nothing to do with the commandments. All right, so rejection is a gospel-centered theme because it's salvation sans law or apart from law. So in other words, the, the idea or the theme or the story of rejection moving to salvation is different than the, the Ten Commandments, Right? It's like apples and oranges. Those are, those are two different things. And I would argue two covenants of the Bible, two testaments. I don't have time to go into that today, but two covenants of the Bible are two testaments. They represent two different things. And this is especially important with Moses, all right? So what I want you to see here is that for Stephen to give this really long speech that, that Steph read through, we, we saw a lot on Moses, and basically it was a survey of his life from his birth all the way through to his rejection and his time in exile to coming back and delivering the, the Israelites from Egypt. It was a survey on his life. For Stephen to highlight Moses in his speech and not to mention the law at all that he brought down from Sinai, but instead to highlight the part of the story that had to do with his rejection. And this is crazy. It would have been crazy offensive to people who were law lovers but also surprisingly selective for him to do this for people who knew the Bible well. I mean, even as this may have, like, tainted you guys a bit, I mean, in a good way, tainted's a bad word, but this may have tainted you uh, based off of what I'm going to ask you right now, but just pretend you didn't hear what I just said. When you think of Moses, if you've read the Bible before and know a little bit about Moses, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What's the first thing? What's the most important part of his life? Or what's the biggest thing he did? Is probably what came to mind. If it didn't, that's okay. It's actually, maybe that's good, and I'll get to that in a second here. But what probably came to mind is Moses coming down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments carved on stone tablets by the finger of God. Do this and you will live, right? It's one of the main things he did is he was a lawgiver. He gave the law. He mediated a covenant. But for Stephen not to mention a whisper of that, as a Jew, what's he thinking, Right? This is kind of like saying, um, you know, when you talk about Joe Maurer, the Minnesota twin, saying the most important part of Joe Maurer's life is that he likes raisins. And, and, you're, and you're sort of like, what are you talking about? He's a baseball player. Like, he plays for the, you know, used to play for the Minnesota twins. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, no, guys, did you, didn't you know that Joe Maurer loves raisins? And we'd be like sitting here thinking, what are you talking about? This is probably what they thought, is what are you, why are you, you're leaving out the most important thing from his life. But here's the thing. He actually isn't. He's being selective with what he's choosing to talk about in Moses' life to get at the gospel sans law or apart from the law. And it's so important to see this, that there is, there is no English word that accurately expresses how important this is to see. Stephen is doing biblical theology here. What he's saying to us is, not all parts of Moses' life are created equal. Not all parts of Moses' life are created equal. There are more important parts, and there are less important parts. And what he's saying here is, Moses' rejection, the fact that he was rejected, the story of his rejection, is more important than his reception of the law. It's more worthy of talking about. It's more worthy of bringing this to the feet of this council and saying, this is really what God was doing through Moses, is he had him be a rejected leader. That's way more important than the reception of the Ten Commandments. 
And the reason he's doing this, just to skip ahead here a bit, the reason he's doing this is because Jesus is more important than the law. Jesus' rejection for us is more important than the law. Like the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. To quote from Hebrews, Hebrews says the, the New Covenant is better than the Old One. Because the old one's growing obsolete. It was built on more faulty promises. It was always intended to grow obsolete and become old. And set the stage for this better one that would replace it. The law, Stephen's saying in his speech, the law through Moses has faded. But the the rejection theme in Moses' life has continued. Does that make sense? The law, but by, by choosing to highlight what he did, he's saying the law part of Moses' life, that has faded. But the theme of his rejection that turned into our salvation, that has continued on into this New Testament era. And it's found its home and completion and finish line in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was rejected for us, the second Moses, essentially. So this is how this starts to preach to us as well. Jesus' death is more important than moralistic commands. Do you believe this? Jesus' death is more important than moralistic commands. In fact, Jesus came to replace them with himself. There are ethics in the Christian life, but Jesus came to replace the law. He came to replace the commands, and especially the covenant that was wrapped like a robe around them, which said, do this, and then you will live. That has been broken. Like Moses came down Mount Sinai and broke broke the tablets on the ground. Another Moses would come someday and actually do much more than break the tablets. He would break the old covenant entirely by fulfilling it. That's another sermon. All right. The speech itself then. So the the first side of this is a biblical theology of Jews rejecting their own leaders. The second side is a biblical theology of contrasting works and grace. So I'm going to kind of go through this a little bit quicker, but first we see in Stephen's speech more grace. In verse 3, he reminds us the that God graciously appeared to Abraham to call him to a new land. And he touches briefly on Isaac, his son, who was a son of promise, born miraculously at the hand of God, not by human effort. That's huge. Hold that in your mind as we, as we go here. Then in verse 13, again, when, when we liken Joseph to Jesus, we see that Joseph, as a savior figure, made himself known to his brothers. Remember that point in the story, if you've read it before? Which in the story is this amazing emotional moment where the rejectors are saved and embraced by the rejected. And then in verse 34, he's careful to touch on how God heard Israel's groaning in Egypt and he came down to deliver them. So in all this, grace is not just kindness from God, it's undeserved, one, and two, it's towards enemies. It's towards rejectors. It's towards God-haters that this grace is shown. And three, it's apart from works and apart from the law. And that's where you start to see Stephen really go all in on this theme when he talks about works in a contrasting way to grace. And remember, so for all of us, this is important. Um, for Jews, especially in the first century, this was a huge, hugely paradigm-shifting thing. And so they're, they're hearing this, and it's offensive, and they ultimately kill him for it, all right? But this is what he says. And it's not just works, it's embracing it over grace. So so on the one hand, in verse 41, they reject Moses, the savior figure, and God with him. And in his place, they fashion a golden calf because they're like, where's Moses? He went up on this mountain and we haven't seen him for a while. And where's God, the guy who brought us out of Egypt? We haven't seen him. They fashion a golden calf and they they worship and make sacrifices to, to it. So on the one hand, they do that. But look how Stephen theologizes about this event. When you think about that event, especially if you've read it before, the golden calf fiasco from Exodus 32, what do you think about it? Why is it so bad? Why is it bad that they made the calf? Is it just that they fashioned the calf together? It's not. That is bad. But it's not just that. According to Stephen, it's not just that. It was that they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. That's why it was so bad. Not just that they fashioned something, but because they were proud of it. They worshipped something that they had made with their hands physically. They had done. So it's not just idol making, it's self-worship. It's rejoicing what they had done, what they had made, and offering sacrifices to it, basically saying, aren't we amazing? 
That's why it's so bad. Every time you hear about or read Exodus 32 or the golden calf fiasco again for the rest of your life, use this passage to interpret it. The point is not just the calf. The point is works. The point is pride. The point is this phrase, rejoicing over what they had done with their hands and replacing God with their works. You guys see that? Let's keep going, and it comes up again here in the latter verses. So that happens in verse 41. Skipping down, we see it come up again in verse 48 where he says, God does not dwell in houses made by hands. You guys see that same phrase? God does not dwell in houses of works, houses that pertain to the law, houses made by hands, but rather he dwells uh, in heaven. And so that's why he says here, same uh, phraseology here, but in verse Um, or later, skipping down to verse 50, did not my hand make all these things? This is God saying, speaking of heaven and earth and the universe, that's my throne. Did my hand make all these? See how it contrasts with the works of people's hands? And how that's associated with the law and with temple building and with pride? But how he says, this is truly where I live. I live in the place of my work, what I can give to all creation, what I can give to sinners, what I can give to people who cry out for me. That's truly where I dwell. You see how the works-grace contrast here is just dialed up with this theme of my hands or our hands and how they contrast? What Stephen's saying here is, even though for a time God kind of dwelt in the temple, what really is going on is he never really did. God dwells in a place of grace, not law. Grace, not works. His hands saving us, not our hands saving ourselves. All right, and then at the end here, in 51, I mean, to call these men stiff-necked and resistors of the Holy Spirit is basically to say they resist the opposite of the law because the law and the Spirit are so often contrasted in the Bible. The law kills, but... What gives life? The Spirit gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.6. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The idea of the Spirit in the Bible is important because it's so closely associated with grace. We're made alive by the Spirit, by God breathing life onto us and softening our hearts and saying, believe in my Son and what he did for you on the cross and you will be saved. That's how we're saved. Not by the flesh, or by the works of the hands, or by the law. And so when we contrast these two, we see, we see in part here, pulling from all we looked at before Stephen's point. They resist, they're resisting the works of God for the sake of their own works. They resist the savior figures of God in the place they worship themselves. The opposite of the spirit. So put these two things together then, both themes. I think Stephen's saying this. You reject God's generously given Savior figures for the sake of your own works. You reject God's generously given Savior figures all throughout history. Your fathers have done this, and now you have done it, and I have done it. You reject God's generously given Savior figures, but not just you haven't done that. You've done it for the sake of rejoicing over the works of your hands. As your fathers did, so do you. He's saying here to the people of God, you are not the people of God. Even the Old Testament that you so religiously uphold, Stephen's saying, even that testament, that part of of the Bible that was their Bible of the day, even, even there, it upholds this teaching that you are just an extension now of the line of God rejectors and works upholders, eager to strut your awesomeness in front of others. Stephen's also saying, you were too good for God. All of you. You were too good for him. And you completely missed the point of the law and the prophecies that said, another like Moses is coming. And at this they grind their teeth in anger. And because he, you know, Stephen, really what he's doing here is he's attacking their God. They're upset and angry because their God is themselves. And and they misunderstood the purpose of the law and they used it to bolster them and to make them pride-filled and and to fill them with their own arrogance and 
that they might strut their awesomeness around in front of others. And, and they grind their teeth, it says, and they hold their ears. Because Stephen, by holding up Jesus and grace, is pressing down the works of their hands and pressing down what they could, what they could credit to their own name based off of morality and commandment keeping and law keeping. But Stephen isn't done. He's about to show them Jesus one final time, and I think in an even more profound way, by his own death. Let's flip there for a few minutes. Stephen's death. Uh, Luke is intentionally recording his death in a way that reminds us of someone else's death. And he's actually in this chapter too. He's actually the, the main character. It's not Stephen. But he's in this chapter too. He's alive in heaven. And, and of course, um, I'm referring uh, to Jesus. So Stephen's death, the way Luke records it, is meant to be unmistakably Jesus-like. And here's just a, a short list of, actually this is the main list. There are other things as well. A few similarities. Both Stephen and Jesus are seized and arrested. Both are questioned by the high priest. Both are falsely accused, but kind of rightly accused. Both are cast out of the city. Remember the importance of this? To be outside of the city in the temple is to shun it, and it represents the, the outside of the law idea. And so I'm not going to go back into that today for time's sake, but the fact that this happened outside the city, if you remember this theme from the series, we see this again here in Stephen's death. He was specifically, quote, cast out of the city, so his death is happening apart from law. Anyway, five, uh, fifth thing, he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus says something similar in different words, though, because he is the Son of Man, but he says this before his death. Um, they both said, receive my spirit. Jesus said it to God the Father, but Stephen says it to Jesus. They both said something like, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's actually Stephen's words. Jesus says something like, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the same thing. And then uh, both passages men, uh, mentioned that they're buried by devout men. All right, so unmistakable. We have two options there. One is, oh, coincidence. Or two, it's like, no, Jesus is here, and he's filling Stephen. And the whole point of the Bible is about Jesus, so this shouldn't shock us, right, when we see this. Stephen's death is not about Stephen's death. Stephen's death is about Jesus' death, right? Everything here. So his whole life and the circumstances surrounding his death are, are about Christ. And then it becomes gospel to us. And so what, what I want you to see here is not, uh, don't follow this instinctual kind of path of just seeing the point of today's passage is about God being with you when you suffer, as though you were Stephen. Though that's obviously true and a very important thing to understand. If you're suffering, he is with you. Be comforted in that, in this manner. He sees you. He has, he has a purpose and a plan for suffering. We've talked about that in this series as well. He's not out of control, and he's with you. So that's a huge piece, but that's not the main thing. Try to fight the instinct to go there too quickly. Instead, see this. And see, Stephen's not a picture of you. You're not a picture of Stephen. Stephen's a picture of Jesus. And if anything in the passage, we're the enemies. We're the council. All of us have crucified Christ. All of us have said in some way, I hate you or I don't need you or I'm the king of my own life or I disbelieve you or you're not that present or I don't like you or how dare you. Everyone has done that. That's what sin is. It's rejection of God on very passive, seemingly benign levels but also very visceral levels as well and everything in between. And so then this passage becomes gospel for us. Not just kind of a good thematic idea of God being close to sufferers, though that's good, but I mean actually gospel. Not just like interesting and helpful and comforting, but gospel. Because then Stephen's words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, though slightly different from Jesus' way of saying it, are really still Jesus' words to us. And it images wonderfully what's happening for us on the cross. I mean, if you have ever struggled with the idea of Jesus being your advocate, you know, we talk about this in theology sometimes, we talk about Jesus being an advocate for us, that's in the Bible. If you've ever, like, wrestled with that or thought that's kind of abstract, then hear this, listen to this, look at this. Look at how God's Son has advocated for you. But it's not really his plea, when we think about Christ in this, it's not really his plea 
It's his plea through his death. And Stephen's a shadow of this and a whisper of this and a pointer to the, the better Stephen, the greater Stephen, who, remember, is in this story looking down from heaven and actually allows Stephen's death to almost stri- perfectly, in a way, resemble Jesus' death uh, in, in and through what they say, to, to drive home the point of theology so it's not just a martyrdom, it's gospel. And so with Christ in mind, it's not really his plea, it's his plea through his death that's making it so our sins will not be held against us. And isn't that the epitome of grace? When you guys, and this is what you should be hearing in a passage like this, and I should, you should hear the voice of God saying this to you when you read your Bibles and when you sing these themes. When I'm saying this, you know, when Steph read it, these are the words of God for sinners like us. That through Christ, our sins aren't being counted against us. It's like this unfair exoneration. The law would say what to our sin? By definition, what does the law say? Hold this sin against them. Make them pay, right? Karma would say pay them back. But grace says unfairly exonerate these really, really wicked enemies of God. That's what grace says. Unfairly exonerate these really wicked sinners by taking the life of a righteous one instead of them. This is the whole point of Christianity. And notice, it's all sans law, because the law is the opposite of that. You cannot blend law and grace. You cannot do it. The law is the opposite of grace. The law says, pay them back. Make them pay. But grace says, take me instead. This is what Jesus says, take me instead. And so, so Stephen's dying words here, I think, once again preach, preach against the law, preach grace. And I like how it says, I don't have this up here, but it says uh, before this, it says, Stephen cried out. So the ones who were stoning Stephen heard him say that. Isn't that amazing? Makes you just want to rejoice and weep and cry in happiness, but also, what kind of grace is that? Have you guys ever been showed that before by another person? Maybe you have, and if you have, it's a whisper of God's. Maybe you you haven't. But what this is saying to all of us is, it exists, though, in the world. This kind of grace towards enemies. So when Stephen cries this out, Lord, don't hold this in against him, he's preaching the gospel with his death, but also his final words preach the gospel because the law doesn't say that. So stop trying to reconcile yourself to God by being a good person. You will never, ever finish. The, the, the road paved to hell is just paved with laws and commandments and good intentions and moralism and religiosity. But we don't need God on that path because we're pretty, we're pretty great. Romans 4, 6 to 8 Speaking of, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness or salvation apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Does that language sound familiar? He's quoting Psalm 34, I think it is. This is in the New Testament, though. It's the Apostle Paul, the guy at the end of Acts 7, who's approving of the killing of Stephen. The one who's murdering Christians is later converted and becomes a Christian himself and wrote this letter to the church in Rome. Isn't that great? Wondering maybe if he thought back to what Stephen said when he was endorsing the the senseless murder of one of God's children. He thought back and said, what did he say? What did Stephen say? When the stones were being thrown over his head and blood was spilling everywhere, he was saying, God, don't hold this sin against him. That's what Jesus says through his death, the ultimate Stephen. Stephen's death is a replay of Jesus's. I mean, guys, again, if we see Christ in Stephen, who are we in the passage? Who are we most like? The council, right? The enemies of God. Did you wonder, when Steph was reading this earlier, did you wonder, And Jesus is right there looking down through the clouds 
why isn't Jesus stepping in and stopping this? Why isn't Jesus killing the, the ones who are doing the stoning and interceding and stopping the senseless murder of Stephen? Why is Stephen dying and the enemies of God are going free? Why is that happening? It's unfair. It's unjust. And the answer to that is, for the sake of the gospel, it's happening this way. Because that's what's happened to you and me. Because Jesus, the, second, the ultimate Stephen, is unfairly dying for us. He dies in our place. We're like the council. We're, we're the ones, we're the murderers who go free. Do you see the great exchange happening here yet again in the Bible? Grace. What kind of crazy grace is this? This is God's grace, not just towards anybody, but towards enemies like us. If we don't understand that that's who we are, God's grace will not be sweet. It will not be something we reach out for, something we long to hear about in church or to eat in communion or to sing over other Christians or to hear sung over us. It will get old and boring because we'll be too much at the center of our worlds and our works will as well. But Stephen's been very clear, guys. Grace and law, grace and works don't go together. Right? That's his whole point. The Old Testament, for crying out loud, tells us this. Not just the New. The Old Testament predicts these things. So as we reach out and bask in the grace of God, we, we do so with joy. And if you guys are sinners, and I encourage you, please hear God's voice in this. This is God's word to you and me today. It's Jesus is saying, basically, Father, hold not all of these people, these people of Hiawatha Church's sins, hold them not against them. You love them and so do I. Let my rejection mean their acceptance. And then Jesus says, show your forgiveness, Father, to them through my blood. Show your forgiveness to Hiawatha Church through my blood. What it costs to save them. And again, just how much you love them and what you weren't willing to withhold. You weren't willing to withhold your one and only son, but you gave him up or me up, Jesus is saying, so Sinners like us and enemies might be brought in. That is the gospel and that is sans law. Apart from it. Apart from works. But only something that can be received, cherished, thanked, thanking God for. And um, and, and ongoingly something that we nourish ourselves on daily. Uh, It is the grace of God for sinners like us. Praise be to God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this speech. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of biblical theology. It's a masterpiece of the gospel. It's a masterpiece of teaching us how to understand the Bible, how to read it. It is one long kind of, in some ways, tragic, in some ways, beautiful story of uh, humanity trying really hard to satisfy themselves on something besides God. And that includes goodness. That includes morality. It includes commandments. But Jesus' blood came in, and Moses typified this. In your word, God, you, you show us how Moses himself, even the one who gave the law, was one who broke the laws, broke the tablets so long ago. How much more would Jesus come when he established a New Testament with his blood, would break the tablets and say, now what reconciles you to me and God the Father is my spilt blood. And my rejection was long foretold for centuries and millennia before the the people of God have have always rejected my free gift of salvation. They've always rejected my leaders and my prophets and my savior figures. And now that I'm here, I'm the final one of them. They all pointed to me. But my rejection means your life. My blood means your acceptance. My scandalous death among criminals means that you don't have to go through that. The debt has been paid. Praise be to God. Help us to believe uh, and not to replace you, Father, with, uh, with good things, but to see them as, as gifts as well, like especially like the, the gift of your son is. In Christ we pray it all. Amen.